Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. This week, I speak with John Dyer, San Antonio-based photographer, best known for his beautiful, moving, and evocative portraits of pop star Selena, but who also has taken some incredible portraits of the American West as we know it today, but in a way that looks like it was done a century ago. Check out this great episode with John and listen to what he has to say about creativity, photography, and working with an analog format in a digital world. I hope you enjoy the episode. So John Dyer, thank you so much for joining us on the Burning Castle podcast. Um, it's great to talk to you. Um, I love speaking to photographers in particular. Um, it's a, literally a unique perspective, but also, of course, figuratively. Um, so, you know, before we jump into the, the meat of it, I just want to give people a bit more about you, where you are, what you do, where you've come from, um, and then we can get into the substance. Um, I'm originally from Montana. I was born 30 miles from the Canadian border. I've lived in South Texas, San Antonio, oh, since about um, the early 60s. Mm-hmm. I have an undergraduate degree in painting. I have a graduate degree in the history of art. Um, and, and it was in graduate school that I began to be interested in photography. And what was it that, uh, that caught you? Why, why did you take that turn? There were two men there, one who was retiring, well, and both these guys were giants of photography from the 20th century. One by the name of Russell Lee, who was retiring, <clears throat> and he was re- being replaced by uh, another man named Gary Winogrand. Excuse me a second. <coughs> who was um, uh, a different generation from a different part of the country. Um, and, and between the two, they showed me two diametrically different ways of photographing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Russell Lee was um, earned his reputation shooting pictures during the Depression in the States in the 1930s. Uh, he was hired by uh, a federal agency called the Farm Securities Administration, uh, along with several other photographers, very prominent photographers, whose job was to go out, fan out across the uh, in, in the smaller towns and villages and ranches and farms. Uh, of the West and document poverty. Mm. People in the big cities knew that times were bad and they knew that people were suffering, but they had no idea that uh, in the smaller towns and, and, and farms and, and, and ranches, the children were starving to death mm-hmm. and, and fathers were killing themselves because they were so ashamed at not being able to take care of their families. And so that was the, the mandate of these photographers to go out and somehow ingratiate themselves. Well, let, let's, let's think about Russell Lee drives out in a Model A uh, to a little town in Wisdom, Montana, and goes out to a ranch, drives mm-hmm. up to a ranch. Here's a rancher that's really struggling, really having a hard time. And he introduces himself. He's a he's a uh, got a coat and tie on. He's from the city. He's a stranger. He's probably not wanted there. And somehow or other, Russell Lee was able to ingratiate himself with these people, um, allay their fears about what he was doing and what he wanted to do, and and penetrate their reality and photograph them in their poverty and in their suffering. Mm-hmm. and send those photographs back to Washington. And then those photographs were used in newspapers and magazines 
in articles written by the government to say, look, this is, this is why we need to pass these New Deal uh, plans because this is how bad it really is. So it was a, it was um, um, definitely a government government thing and definitely intended to sway public opinion. But what came out of that effort, among all these photographers, is some of the most sublime photographs of the 20th century. Wow. So here's Russell. He was an old man by the time I met him. Um, I I learned a lot from him about his approach. And then he was replaced by a, a man by the name of Gary Winogrand, who was um, earning quite a reputation for himself. He was from New York. He was the quintessential street shooter. He prowled the streets of the Bronx and Brooklyn and New York and just taking pictures as he found them. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I was in, entranced by these two guys because they were both very charismatic and they both wove a story that was intoxicating to me. I didn't understand anything about photography. I didn't understand much about how cameras worked. It was all, it was a long learning curve for me, but I knew that it was something that I wanted to try. Um, Russell Lee, it, it, they were the ones that, that illustrated to me, I think, what for me became the great dichotomy in photography, those that, make pictures and those that take pictures. <laughs> Russell Lee was a, a maker of pictures. Gary Winogrand was a taker of pictures. Mm. And the difference is the taker of pictures goes out into the world and with his little Leica with a 35 millimeter lens on it. Remember, this is all film. Mm -hmm. And as, as reality presents itself to him, he throws the camera up in front of him and puts his frame around a, an instant of time and space and snaps the shutter. And that's what he's got. Right. Um, those guys don't crop their photos. They don't do anything to them. You either get it or you don't. You don't ask permission. You don't, uh, you almost, you try to become invisible if you can. Now, Russell, on the other hand, would get the permission of people to, in order to photograph them and, and together they would collaborate in making a photograph. So I tried my hand at both. I tried, I bought a Leica with a 35 millimeter lens and wandered around the streets and parades and events uh, in different places and tried to do what Gary Winogrand did. And it's very difficult to do. And it, to me, it was kind of thankless. It just didn't it didn't do what I needed it to do. So it became clear to me that Russ's approach, getting the permission of the subject, working together to create a photograph, that's what the rest of my career has kind of been based on, is being uh, collaborating on the process of taking pictures as opposed to just taking them and turning and walking away. Yeah, you know, and I, I think you can, you see that in your work where, you know, it feels like there is something that has been uh, very, very carefully produced. It's almost got, um, there's almost something painterly about some of the images. Um, you know, I'm thinking that there's a remarkable image of a man with a, um, a base, a full, full sized um, base, and, which is on fire. <laughs> and it's it's a great I, I everyone you gotta look it up i don't know what the the name of the photo is but it's something where you just there's a man by wow. the name of juan viesca and here mm -hmm. in san antonio that's from a book i did in 2007 on on a a, a, a kind of roots music which is uh specific to S south texas and northern mexico called conjunto c-o-n-j-u-n-t-o and it's equal parts Northern Mexican ranchera music and German umpa music. <laughs> the, key, the key instrument in the conjunto is a button accordion, which is right out of Germany and Czechoslovakia. Right. And then they will sing songs, they will sing wapangas and, and, um, and rancheras, and they will also sing polkas and mazurkas, which are, <laughs> with your background, you know that they're, those are Eastern European songs. Um, and, and this man, Juan Viesca, played what's called a tololoche, which is the upright bass. He played it all of his life for 50 years. 
and for some reason at the end of his sessions is his performances he would light his base on fire <laughs> and 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 so i arranged to, to in doing this book i arranged to take a picture of him and we did different places around his house and got into his kitchen and he posed and i was taking pictures and he said well you're ready for me to light my base up i said well, yeah here in the kitchen oh yeah so it's a little bit deceptive. He turned it around. So if you'll notice, the photo is the the, the fire is on the back of the base. Mm, yeah. It's not on the string side. And his son yeah. came in and put a little clear alcohol on it and struck a match to it. And it just and wow. that was it. It didn't burn the base up, but it, right. it was it, it, and I, I took two pictures. The second one is the one that's in the book. I got lucky and, and got the flame doing its thing. You can see he's kind of leaning away from the flame a little bit. Wisely, yeah. But that was clearly an example of what we're talking about. Clearly, he and I were working together to make that picture take. take yeah, though, though in that case, there, there's a bit of a mix because you really had only one, or I, I guess two, but very two, two very limited opportunities. Because I imagine he wasn't going to light that base on fire over and over and over so you got the perfect shot it was kind of like right. here's, your, here's the time to get it um it, which well, it, it's a great photo people can see it at heidi vaughn fineart.com and vaughn is v-a-u-g-h-a-n fineart.com it's an amazing photo thank you for mentioning that she's a she's a real important person in my life yeah, and it's a great um, it's a great place to see John's work, including um, the iconic photos of Selena, which you took. I mean, these are kind of photos that define one of the most important influential pop figures of the 20th century um, by far. And this this young woman who's kind of reached this mythical status because of her early death. Um, but these are good. These are, are remarkable photos because you see a human being inside of the pop star, which is the great thing. Because usually when you're looking at iconic photos of, of pop stars or rock stars, you see the image, you see the contour. But in so many of these photos, you see this young woman um, who that she was and you see her in some cases joy in some cases vulnerability or other things but you know if you could just tell us a little bit more about how that all came to be and what it was like to take those photos and to to achieve what you did with them um, yeah in 1992 I was contacted by a magazine called Mas M-A-S which means more in Spanish it was a Spanish language magazine that originated in New York. I'd never heard of them. And they said, uh, there's, a, there's a young lady, a, a young Tejana in South Texas singer that's beginning to make a name for herself. I'd heard of her, but didn't, other than that, didn't know much about her. And we're going to do um, a cover story. Well, a cover story to a photographer means you've got to have um, a strong photo for the cover, and then you've got to have uh, a handful of additional photographs different to illustrate an article, which is probably several pages. <clears throat> so we made arrangements. I got in touch with, uh, I think it was got in touch with her father mm -hmm. um, and uh, for her to come by my studio. I had a big 2000 square foot studio at the time. And before that, I'd set up some different situations where I could place her and do photos of her. Uh, one with a red curtain hanging down the wall, one with just a gray background. And then the third one was um, a wall space out in front of my studio. I wanted to end up out there in the late afternoon, but photographers call liquid light, beautiful light. And she showed up in a little red car um, and by herself and opened mm. up the back and it was packed with probably every costume that she possessed mm -hmm. for, for doing her performances. And we gathered them up in arms, took them into my dressing room. And then we, we probably worked eight hours. Um, wow. One of the things that a photographer has to do, you work on, on like parallel um, parallel paths when you're photographing anybody, but particularly a celebrity. You're getting to know them. You're getting to um, 
hopefully make them feel safe and that they're in the hands of somebody that knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst thing you can do if you're a photographer and you're about to photograph somebody is to, is to, I don't know, your, your tripod falls over, a light doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You start fumbling around and, and then a little question mark, a question goes in the mind of the subject thinking, gee, does this guy really know what he's doing? Maybe I better be careful here. Maybe the photos are going to be me picking my nose or whatever. I mean, you've got to, I mean, it's a little bit like in that you're in the dental chair and your mouth is open. The dentist is hard at work on a tooth in the back and he goes, oops, mm-hmm. you think, well, am, I, am I in the wrong place? So, so that's the first thing you do. You have to create, and this is almost a cliche and I don't want it to sound like a cliche, but you you try to create a safe environment, a safe space for this subject so that they can be themselves. Right. Particularly celebrities, they're, um, they're very careful about how they look uh, to a camera. And, and a lot of times they'll have a good side, the bad side, or they'll, they, they will smile or they won't smile. And you, you kind of get this, this list of, this is what I will do and this is what I won't do. And fortunately, she wasn't like that. We got along immediately and she was friendly and fun and full of energy. And somehow or other, she came to believe that I knew what I was doing. And, and then we just, we worked together to do these photos. Mm-hmm. She's a performer. So she was used to being seen by people. So she didn't have any reticence about, about dancing or, or posing or smiling for the camera that didn't intimidate her Um, most people don't like to have their pictures made I think the camera just absolutely loved her and I think she knew the camera loved her Mm -hmm. and so we would go we'd step in front of the red curtain and do different things she'd have an outfit on she'd go in the dressing room and change outfits we'd step in front of the gray background and so on Um, and I took quite a lot of film this is film not digital Um, I was shooting two and a quarter transparencies if that means anything to you Nope. Um, <laughs> you're a, you're just a kid. You don't know about film. Uh, photographers, when I first started, had to have quite quite a deep knowledge of technique and and materials. And there were different kinds of films specific to different kinds of light. There were um, you had to be very careful with exposure. I had a handheld photo uh, uh, light meter. Uh, to get the exposure right with the lights, you had to be very good at, at setting lights up and, and know how the film would react to certain lights and so forth. Now with digital cameras, you know, the camera does most of that. It does color, color balancing. It does exposure for you. It does focus for you. All the cameras I used back then were all manual focus, manual exposure. So there was a lot of, in the background, a lot of kind of technical knowledge I needed to bring to that that session well any of the sessions I did back then um, so that I'd end up with some images on film have something to show for eight hours of working with somebody but that's kind of how that worked and and uh, she gave me she gave me truth and she gave me honesty and um, I you know maybe I contributed to that but I think it was just something that the kind of an aura that, that from her Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you know you still you still see it and you still feel it through those photos. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, and they're they're amazing. And you know, I, I wonder. This is kind of one of those like those. I think something that occurs to a, people who have this puristic tendency, like as I feel like I do, which is did having to master those technical elements of a film camera help you or force you to shoot in a different way, or maybe to shoot in a way that is a little bit more rich because you're really having to pay attention to every single element and factor where today, as you're saying, you can take a good digital camera, even a not a good digital camera, just press the button and you're going to get something that looks reasonable. Do you think that that played an element in being able to get these kinds of shots? Yeah. I mean, I used a a medium format camera. There's, there's like, three general sizes there's 35 millimeter that everybody knows like a color slide is 35 millimeter there's a size of film up from that that each frame is two and a quarter by two and a quarter mm-hmm. square 
And then you go one step up from that, it's called large format. Each piece of film is four inches by five inches. I shot some four by five film of her too. And 35 millimeter film cameras would work pretty quickly. You had 36 shots on one roll of film. So you could shoot pretty quickly. I never liked that much because the film is small and there's not a lot of information on it. So if I wanted to do enlargements, kind of limited to how big your enlargements can be. Medium format, there are 12 shots on a roll. So you've got 12 shots and then and then you've got, you have to stop for like a minute, minute and a half to re reload film. So you necessarily think about each frame uh, uh, and, and, and try to take your time. And I did that on purpose because I mm. tend to shoot too quickly. Now I've got digital cameras and I just shoot them like a machine gun, you know? Right. Um, but, and then four by five, you shoot one frame at a time and then you have to load another piece of film in and shoot a, another frame. So you're really working slow. And I did that on purpose so that it would slow me down and make me think about what I was doing and be a little mm -hmm. more careful about talking to my subject and about composing and, and is my light just right and so forth. Yeah. And you know, it's, you know, when you're looking at your photos, it's, it's such a spectrum that on the one hand kind of starts from something that does look more like Russell Lee, you know, you have photos that kind of look like they're from a completely different century you know, photos of uh, the West of, I'm assuming a lot of it being Texas. Um, and then there's stuff that's, that is very much of the moment. That's very much uh, the here and now. And, you know, and there's this, and there are things that don't align with that spectrum as well. So, you know, the question I think that I'm kind of reaching for is how has the photography changed as the world around you has changed where, you know, I don't know how much photography you do of the kind of stuff that, that you seem to have done in the past, which is um, people, you know, ranchers and horses um, and that kind of thing. Is that kind of thing still relevant or do you feel like the photography had to change with the changing world? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, think, I think what you're asking is have I changed my approach or my perspective based on the changing world and yeah i don't um no i <laughs> i'm old enough to i guess kind of be set in my ways i mean um are there subjects out there that that didn't exist 20 years ago that need to be photographed um i suppose there are um i it, it I don't know how to answer that, Ashley, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. I think, I think my mentality, my approach is pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I tend to, to gravitate toward interesting people to doing interesting things. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wish I could say that there's, there's a, a political component to what I'm doing or, yeah. or, or an overtly cultural component to what I'm doing, but only in the sense of it being interesting people doing interesting things. I try not to do an overlay on what I shoot or what I select that is, is intended to, to project some kind of message. Mm -hmm. I just try to be honest with what I'm doing and tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think in a way now, as I think more about it, um, you know, you've got a lot of a lot of the, these photos, and again, I'm assuming a lot of these are are Texas. Certainly, look like the American South or Southwest rancheros and um, people on horses with with uh, with the, you know hats and boots and and everything like that, which all really do look. And the you know, in the very first moment, they strike you as something from the 19th century. But now, as our attention nationally is being brought back to these places, is being brought back to the United States border with Mexico. It's being brought back to Texas, which has somehow become this cultural, um, this throbbing cultural center of the country where you've got Austin as this emergent cultural center. You've got technology fleeing from Silicon Valley to Texas. 
Um, and so it's kind of come full circle where these, these photos that look like they're from a different century now look like they are not from a different century. They look like they're almost relatable when we're starting to think about the stories of people who are living on this border that's become so important, who are crossing the border or living on the other side of the border as well, where it, it feels really immediately relevant in a way that it, it may not have just five or 10 years ago. And that's like very interesting things that it's a, as if the country caught up with you, <laughs> at least imagistically. So I don't know, that's, that's just something that, that had occurred to me. That's interesting, actually. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to ask you about is something that you touched on earlier, which is the, the digital camera and, you know, what it, the ease of it and the power of it, which is, you know, two sides of the same coin, because on the one hand, it, the digital camera makes it possible for really anybody to just go out and start shooting photos as they, however they want. And the cost barrier is so low because you don't have to have them, the, the film taken to a, a lab to be uh, produced and to have, you know, all the materials that go into it, you just shoot and then see what you like. On the other hand, you know, I can imagine, and I have friends and a friend of mine, Zach Ponce, who's a photographer, a younger photographer who took up, he was a writer and he sort of switched into photography in his thirties. Um, I could imagine that being a very daunting thing in today's world that is filled with photography, is filled with photographic imagery. And to think, how can you possibly uh, add something to that stream that is just so saturated with image imagery. So th there's just no threshold. There's no barrier to entry anymore. You know, is that something that you think about, or is this something that is not as relevant to you because you are, you know, so well established in your career or, you know, what's your take on. I think if I, I yes, I have thought about that. And I think if I thought about it too much, it would drive me nuts. <laughs> Um, but it but it has to do a little bit with this with this notion that um, there are only a certain number of ideas. It's a little bit like you. You're a writer. What it, what what is it they say? There are only three storylines: mm -hmm. yeah. um, um, love story, a quest, and what what's it? There a revenge or something? That's it. I think Aristotle said that. Yeah. And, and so if you want to be a writer and you say, well, there are only three stories and here we are 10,000 years into people writing stories, why should I bother? It's all been done. Right. So, but it's not about that. It's not about the idea. It's what you do with the idea. Right. And that makes it fresh and different every day. You have to somehow tell yourself you're a unique human being. You have a unique perspective, a unique um take on on life and that if you put a camera up in front of your face you're going because you are a unique human being you're going to take a different picture than somebody else right um and 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 that's i i i absolutely believe that or if i didn't believe that i'd quit taking pictures well the, all the pictures that can be taken have been taken well obviously that's not right Mm -hmm. um, again, you as a writer, uh, you know, there've been an awful lot of stories written, but have they all been written? Have they all been told? And if I asked you that, you would say, absolutely not. There's still things that I can tell as a writer and I can tell it in my own voice and, and give a different perspective on it. Uh, but you're, but you're right that we're, we're inundated with so much imagery today, Google images and all the rest of it, most of which have been done by by digital cameras, <clears throat> that it would be easy to be intimidated by that. Um, I, when I was thinking about you and I talking, I was thinking about um, like flower pictures of flowers. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many how many pictures of flowers have there been? And yet, it's still possible to take pictures of flowers that are interesting and fresh and new and different. You know, mm -hmm. so it's not the idea; it's it's what you do with the idea. I mean, I kind of got off what you were talking about digital cameras, but um... no, I, I think that's to the point. I think what you said is the real point. And I think that's where, where anyone, no matter what field, if they're even if they're not in the arts or letters, they face that same that same uh, factor of intimidation to say, do I, I 
little me really have something to contribute to this massive body of whatever it is I'm trying to do. And it's a weird thing because on the one hand, you kind of have to withdraw yourself from that world and say, okay, I am me, my perspective matters, it's important. And on the other hand, you can't get lost in that notion that your perspective is so magical because then you end up doing something solipsistic, something that just becomes really childish because you're not really challenging yourself with an audience. It's a, like finding that tension, I mean, maintaining that tension between you as the individual artist and the big broad world out there um, that's judging or even worse, ignoring or maybe accepting and celebrating you. Um, that I think is that it's a very fine line. It's a very fine amount of tension and I think it's probably something that whatever you do, whoever you are, if you're a photographer, a writer, an entrepreneur, a musician, or anything else, you have to constantly always be playing with that, always be adjusting it, like a, like a musical instrument, always be tuning it. Um, so there's just the right amount of tension between you and the world and you and the audience, you and your subject matter as well. And it's a very, well, very- I, I think you also have to ask yourself, why are you doing this thing? Yeah. Am I doing it for an audience or am I doing it for myself? And I think if you say I'm doing it for an audience, I think you're making a big mistake. Mm. I think you have to start with the idea that I'm doing this for myself, for the good of my soul. And I'm going to be honest and truthful about it. And then, and then what results is I'm going to lay claim to that. And this, is, this comes from... Um, a, a true, genuine part of me. And if you out there, if you like it, fine. If you don't like it, but if you start trying to create a photo or a story with somebody else in mind, hoping they'll like it, I think you'd agree with me. I think that's a big mistake because you can never win that game. You can never, no, you'll never win it. You'll, you'll always be chasing that dragon. It's uh... Yeah, you're chasing the bus. The bus has already left. Yeah. Yeah, that's like that's like different kind of styles. Styles come and go in writing. They come and go in photography. Right. <clears throat> and and if you if you if you see a style that you're really seduced by, and by the time you learn how to do that style, the bus has already moved down somewhere else. You're just chasing ephemera, and it, right. and right. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't can't play that game. Yeah, that's true. And it's such a tempting game to play, especially today where style, especially in writing, I don't know if it's the case in, in photography, but in, in fiction, probably even in nonfiction, it is so trend driven. It's so style. Who's got the voice? What driven? Trend. It's driven by trends, by... by oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, in, the, in writing and fiction, especially, they talk about voice. Who's got the who's got the voice that people want to hear? And voice is a lot about style. It's also about subject matter. But it's, that's the what you said is the key. If you see someone whose quote unquote voice is succeeding, and you try to go and grab onto that the energy of that trend, you will never succeed. You will be behind. And you know, you I think you also at that point compromise. Uh, what you're doing and you, you it loses the point because then you're, you're aiming for fame you're aiming for money you're aiming for something extrinsic to what the thing it actually That's is exactly right and and if you um when you've created something whether it's a novel or short story whether whether it's a photograph you, you you need to be able to look at that and say does this feel right does this feel honest yeah. does this feel truthful and 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 the 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 affirmation of it needs to come from within from inside that good feeling you get that I did something that where all the parts worked all the parts fit together and they all uh, combine to make something that is that I feel good about and then you can show it to other people. Mm -hmm. We're saying yeah. the same thing, but you're right. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. But you know, Russell Lee in in an interesting way kind of presents a unique case because as you were explaining he went out with a with a mission he went out with a purpose that was sort of assigned to him which is to present a present the the visual uh so-called evidence for the need for this policy for the new deal show the people show these decision makers what's actually going on out there and even if it requires those photos to be um, produced, to be made. And he was still able to go with this intention 
which is an intention for, towards an audience. He had an audience that was policymakers, decision makers, and to still achieve artistry. I mean, you know, every single one of us knows by sight the famous, his famous photo of um, a woman, a, a mother with two small children who are kind of like hiding behind her shoulders and they're all covered in dirt and they look like they're just, she looks like she's careworn and that something has gone terribly wrong in all of their lives. That's an arresting photo. And it is, a, it, in my mind, it's a work of art. But as you were explaining, it was something that he went out to to achieve. He went out to show an audience something specific. So it's a very interesting case that he presents. And I'm not sure many people can actually manage to achieve what he what he did in that way. Well, that gets back to this, you know, the idea was to take pictures of poverty and you could take a million pictures of poverty and they could be ho-hum and and kind of straightforward matter of fact. And 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 it's what all these uh, these FSA photographers did with the the mandate they were given did with the idea that transcended mm -hmm. what what the kind of just nuts and bolts of what they were being asked to do right. was and that's that's the genius of uh, of those photographers that somehow somehow the guy the guy the, the head of the agency was a guy named Roy Stryker and he knew enough to call call on photographers to help him that he knew would would come back with more than just what they were asked to do but that's back to what we were talking about about it's not the idea it's what you do with the idea they did something extraordinary with the idea of documenting poverty right now you know that picture you're talking about that um that's um um dorothea lang and mm -hmm. and um and and there's an interesting story behind that 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 uh, it was it was it was directed a little bit. I mean, she mm -hmm. came she came through this camp and she saw this woman with the two little girls and didn't think about it much. She got into her car and drove a mile down the road and thought, wait a minute, I think there's something there. And she came back and walked up to the woman. Can I take your picture? And the mm -hmm. woman wasn't particularly interested in having her picture made. And the little girls were standing there and Margaret Burke White brought her, brought her camera up. It was a great big black camera. And the little girls were um, intimidated. They hid behind mom. Mm -hmm. And mom mm -hmm. had a, a little kind of an embarrassed look on her face but but that's not what comes through from the photo, especially within the context of which it was taken. Right. And that's why that's why um, it is a little bit off the track. But that's why um, uh, you, you, you have to admit that a photograph has no narrative ability. A photograph can't tell you what's going on in it. Mm. And people are people. People t look at a photograph and they think that it's somehow it's telling them something about what was going on when the when the photographer snapped the shutter. I could very easily convince you that that photo was set up a year ago right. using central casting and using set directors in Hollywood and and these were hired actors and it was and and blah 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 and and you wouldn't there's nothing in that photograph that would tell you that it was it was taken in the 30s and under the circumstances it really was if you didn't have the photographer there right so right. it's it, it, that's why photography to me i'll never there's something that happens when you put a camera up and you snap the shutter there's some something that happens when that image is frozen that I find so compelling, I can't, I don't know what it is, but I can't get enough of it. Right. And, and, and it's, but it's about the kind of simple use of the camera, um, not with a lot of manipulation inside the camera, not with a lot of man, manipulation afterwards, kind of back to your point about digital photography. There's so many ways you can influence uh, digitally Mm -hmm. what an image ends up looking like with Photoshop and, and with inside the camera with color filters and all the rest of it, that, that you, I, I, that doesn't appeal to me at all. I like the, I, I like the simple way of a photo freezes an instant of time and space. A, a camera does. That's what, that's all that I care about a camera doing. 
Yeah, it's, um, you know, that's a, it's a fascinating point, because I think the sort of, you know, on the street, just general notion of a photograph is that it, it is showing you what's happening there. And people can even refer, and they, we often do, we refer to photos and be like, look, there's a photo showing us what actually took place. Just look at it and use your eyes. And the same thing with even video. Look at the video. It's showing us yeah. exactly what's happening. But what you realize, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, no. and the Dorothea Lang photo, it, I mean, I had no idea that that was the context, that these little girls were just kind of shy and embarrassed, which makes sense. I mean, I've got children who are look roughly that age and they are shy and embarrassed sometimes and that's yeah, what sure. they do you know you, you look at that funny like oh these poor children are in the midst of some bout of starvation maybe they were maybe they weren't we don't we don't know but we assume it, it to be the case from that photo just as you know with with news and this is something we see in photojournalism is that there are so many iconic photos we we see and we assume so much from a single image that um we we shouldn't assume because there's no grounds for that assumption to be made. And sometimes it's even the opposite of the case. I mean, I, I just published a book about the New York Times where I, I include um, as one instance in uh, the early 2000s when the rise of the second intifada was just starting. And there was this photo published in the New York Times on the front page of a young man bloody and behind him is a Israeli soldier about to strike him. And the caption was, uh, an Israeli soldier is beating a Palestinian civilian. Turned out that what was actually happening was that the, the Arab, the young Arab man in the photo was a Jewish American student. And the Israeli soldier was fending off a mob and actually saved his life. Um, and so, the assumptions are just so revealing. It, it shows you so much about yourself as to what you have assumed about the photo. The photo is just kind of there. And it's like, you're, yeah, you're putting it, all this. It, it's very insidious the way photography and video, like news photography and video is used for bad purposes, just right. like you're talking about. Right. And, and, and um, that's the bad part of it is that is, is they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that the photograph can't tell you itself what was going on when it was taken. Right. It, it's all about how it's, how it's positioned, how it's captioned, uh, what you're told to believe about it. And then you're right. I mean, if you see a photograph, you think, well, this is the truth. This is, this is the brutality of the Israelis over the Palestinians. I've seen that so many times. Right. Um, there are videos of, 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 of the Palestinians throwing rocks at an Israeli outpost um, and, and then Israelis shooting rubber bullets back or somebody. And then an, an ambulance rushes up and somebody mm -hmm. that's mortally wounded is loaded on the ambulance and, and is driven away. And then they, that's what you see. And then when you see, and then, but they say, yeah, but there's more to the video and the ambulance moves up a hundred feet and the door opens and the guy, the wounded guy gets out and walks away. Right. Right. I, mean, I don't, right. I, that that pisses me off. I'm sorry. And, and it's yeah. it's garbage people doing garbage things with uh, uh, taking advantage of the kind of the indeterminacy of of a photograph that yeah. is dishonest and and it's it's dangerous. Yeah, and you know I, I think there's so much going on in those kinds of imagery images and that kind of imagery, which part of it is financial. Um, you know, the famous saying in news that if it bleeds, it leads, that, yeah. that these images are sexy, they get people riled up, and the, you know, news organizations love that. But, you know, even in very, very, this is something I've noticed a lot, um, in, in very subtle ways, that if you have a, an article, a news article about a unsympathetic figure or a figure who was maybe neutral, but now has been caught doing something that the editors have deemed bad or society's deemed bad. The photo they will use is not a neutral photo. They will use a very, very unflattering photo. They use a photo that is trying to illustrate that person's yeah. uh, moral failings or whatever it might be. And you think to yourself, wait a second, why are they showing me this person in this manner? Why, why not just give me some neutral file photo from whenever, wherever, um, that is not 
that is not editor edit, edit editing the photo or editorializing the photo let me read the article let me gain the facts and i think this is kind of where uh, photojournalism and journalism in general just collide on this issue where people are saying give me the facts don't give me your narrative give me the facts yeah um yeah but i think that's something that you know f- photography for all the reasons that we're saying is is uniquely su- susceptible to that because it is. it's just you it, tend to believe so, what, you, what the photo what you see in a photo and you right. don't know what's going on in the photo exactly exactly you're you're, like you're saying that some of the pictures i've taken look like they were taken in the 19th century right i mean that that part of the reason i was attracted to that subject matter because you've got you've got cowboys right now in 2021 in south texas that are practicing 19th century skills mm-hmm. what other profession do you know where you need to be an expert at 19th century skills Mm-hmm. But but they weren't. They were taken. I don't know. They were taken six seven years ago. Right. So you know, on that point, I think this is, it's a good it's a good place to to kind of start wrapping up. But I, I want to understand, um, you know, what why why did you end up in Texas? What kept you in Texas? What is the that relationship for you as a photographer with Texas? Because it seems to play such an important role in your work. Well, I ended up in Texas because my dad had a job that moved us all over the country, and we, we, we ended up in Amarillo, Texas, which is in northwestern Texas, um, when I was in high school. And, and, and from there, I got a scholarship to go to a college in San Antonio here, and then went from San Antonio to Austin to graduate school, and then married a San Antonio girl. Mm-hmm. And along the, along the way, I fell in love with a kind of, San Antonio is a kind of a, a crossroads, a cultural nexus of different really strong influences. There's the whole Germanic, the German Czechoslovakian mm-hmm. culturally and musically, and then the Mexican influence is very strong here. And there are other, they all kind of crisscross in and around San Antonio. and. And there's there's a a wealth of interesting people doing interesting things that kind of get back to what I originally said that that just so fertile and so so there to um, to be photographed. That book I told you that I did on conjunto music, I worked with a guy, a local musician who's very much a kind of a Chicano, which means. He's very in, invested in the culture of Texas with Mexican ancestry <clears throat> and very kind of jealous about it. But he helped, he helped me get permission to photograph a lot of these guys that an Anglo like me wouldn't normally have been able to do mm. very easily because I'm an outsider. And after it was kind of almost over, I had a beer with him and I said, did it ever bother you that somebody like me was going into your world and photographing these masters, uh, these musical masters um, in this in this uh, musical genre? And he said, he said, you did it. He said, nobody else was doing it and you did it and it needed to be done. And I Mm -hmm. thought, man. That's a really good attitude to have, and this in this age of xenophobia and 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 you know my tribe is not your tribe, and and you know we're distrustful of each other and and cultural what's it called where you you're not supposed to make a taco because you're not mm-hmm. yeah you have that. appropriation yeah so so that's that in, in San Antonio that that's all kind of you know this is the most culturally harmonious place I've ever been. Wow. Um, I've actually never been. I've been to Texas. Uh, Come visit. I'll take you around. I, yeah, I would love to. I, I, I like so many other people. I'm really fascinated by Texas, and um, I'd love to explore it more. So I'll, I think I'll take you up on that. And I, you know, I grew up on a in a border town, Mexican border town in America, which is San Diego. And you know, there's sort of that similarity where you you have so much influence from Mexico music food language um and it's you know something i I always have appreciated and still do appreciate it today because it's such a fascinating rich culture we've got just a minute or two left let me tell you about the most recent project i finished right before covid 
um, it popped into my mind this phrase, the edge of Texas, which is mm. not, that's not unique with me. It's people have used that term before, but I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to drive the perimeter of this state? Because mm. if you go to East Texas over by Louisiana, it is totally different than it is in North Texas and West Texas and South Texas. And I, I ended up driving the, the whole perimeter, just taking pictures just things that caught my eye wow. <clears throat> and all the way around along the Rio Grande over by Caddo Lake up by Oklahoma to kind of document how different this huge state is. I drove 4,400 miles. Wow. And I've got this body of work that really is, I've, I've shopped it to see if there are publishers that want to do it. And it's photo books are hard because people don't buy them and they're really expensive yeah. to do. So yeah. I'm not, I've, I've done books. I don't need to do another book, but that was the last big thing I've done and tremendously satisfying. Mm -hmm. And, and to kind of explore how big Texas is and how different it is from place to place. Yeah, I, it, it is immense. I mean, you know, I think people will have some sense of its size, but it's just, it's sort of hard to fathom. And, and, you know, when I'm living in Israel, which is this tiny little country, smaller than or roughly the size of New Jersey, interesting, Texas is many multiples the size of our, this country and how yeah, much a, there is. It's a pretty potent place. Yeah, that it is. But, um, you know, I hope people go check you out, check out your work. I think a good place to start is your website, if I'm not mistaken, which is Dyer Photography. That's D-Y-E-R photography.com. Um, you can see, see you've got a little section there for the edge of Texas. You got photography, uh, other photographs, sorry. You've got the Selena photographs up there, which uh, anyone who's not seeing those photos, it's like just get online and, and check them out because they are so incredible and, and amazing and showing, you know, my view a different kind of pop culture, pop culture from a, a different time that was a little more naive, a little more pure, um, not quite what it is today. Um, but is there anywhere else that you want people to go find you, find your work, um, anywhere else to direct any? No, that's pretty much it. I'd like to thank you, Ashley. You're a very generous man, and I've enjoyed this. Um, uh, you need to talk about yourself a little bit too. You probably do in other, in other venues, but I you're do, yeah. you're a man of tremendous accomplishment too, and you should be very proud of yourself. Oh, thank that. you, thank you so much, John. I sure. I do appreciate that, and um, I like I said, check out John's website, uh, diarphotography.com, and um, thank you, John. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. Uh, this has been really eye opening, no pun intended, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I hope we talk again. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.